0: Please stand for the reading of God's word from Daniel, chapter 4, verses 1 to 18. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, That fancies, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, and that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream saying, Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know the most, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will, and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation Because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the Spirit of the holy gods is in you. The Word of God for the people of God. God. You may be seated. great
1: privilege to be with you all today I raised my family in this church my children two of them at least were baptized here we moved in 2000 was ordained in this building in 2003 and probably the most consistent thing throughout all that is Greg Russell (laughs) you you hear uh, your elder call you hard-hearted and stubborn and you go man he still knows me (laughs) how does he still know me Uh, I am pleased uh, to be with you. You would think that as a visiting pastor, uh, the hardest thing to give up is the preaching, uh, to let somebody else preach for uh, the congregation that God has put under your care. But as a pastor, I can assure you that's not the hardest thing. The hardest thing for us is to give up praying uh, for our people. So, Travis, thank you for letting me pray uh, for this congregation. Uh, You all are dear to me. I play this game in my mind often that if our lives were like Swiss cheese, if we were to remove one thing in our lives, what would our lives look like? Where would the holes be? And to imagine removing Christ the King Church Cambridge from my life, uh, I just can't even picture it. And so to be back uh, and to preach to you today is a great privilege. So please pray with me as we turn to this text. Father in heaven. You know us. And as has been said from the very first words of this sermon, or this this service, rather, you pursue us. You make yourself known to us. And Father, as I hear Greg read this scripture passage, in the first person of the king of Babylon... Speaking of who you are, held forever in your holy scripture, your text, I I can't wrap my head around your willingness to make yourself known. Father, I praise you for every woman and man in this congregation today. I don't know what Travis knows about their lives. And Father, I can't begin to pray as intimately as Travis can for them. But Father, I come before you and I pray to you because you are the God who has worked out the moments of their lives that they would be here today now, hearing from your word. And Father, it's not just your word that you have given us, but you've given us Jesus. We've already celebrated the fact that we have been forgiven. We we have heard it proclaimed to us that no matter what we did yesterday for those who have put their faith and trust in Christ today we stand before you forgiven and father that makes our knees tremble Jesus I can't get Jonathan's voice out of my head as we think about what was sung for us if I am anything you say Jesus I am everything Come after me. We confess to you that we are women and men who have divided hearts. We worship you, and we are stirred. We are, um, we are, we are made aware of how empty some of the other things that we worship are. But Father, honestly, and I'm thankful that you know this. Our attention spans are so short, and we get up and we walk out and we're worried about the conflict in our family, we judge each other, we are prickly people. Those words that we are hard-hearted and stubborn are yours, and you know it. And in the face of that, you say that you are long-suffering, impatient, But you are kind and merciful and gracious. And Father, we see that in Christ. And I pray that as we, your people, gather in, Father, as this congregation is used to hearing about Nehemiah, and they're getting used to hearing about Nehemiah from Travis, I pray that today would not be too much of a distraction but you would continue, as has already been prayed, that for us, sinners in need of grace, your children, those who are heirs of the covenant, that we would be changed, that we together would be more like Jesus. Father, there's not a woman or a man in this room that doesn't need that. And so you know them, And so, Father, I ask, will you meet them? Will you meet us? Will you show us Christ? And in his glory, would we be changed? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I like Travis's idea of going to Nehemiah. What a great text for you guys to be in, in this transition of uh, time here at CTK. We also recognize a transition of time, same thing that you guys have gone through, COVID at all. And as we began to think about that transition in time, we began to think about what's going to draw us back out into our communities as the people of God, as the church of God. We began to look this last summer at why is God a covenant keeping God? Why does God make himself known as the God who makes covenant with human beings, right? This goes all the way back to Genesis 12, technically with Abraham, and God makes a covenant with Abraham, right? And he promises that covenant. When Moses goes to tell the people of Israel who are in Egypt that God is coming to rescue them, they say, who is that God? And he says, it's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It's the God of your fathers that has made himself known to me. And we've been asking ourselves the question, what does it mean that God is a covenant-keeping God? And if you turn to Genesis 12, you can see really quickly, the reason that God is a covenant-keeping God is actually for the blessing of the nations. Did you know that? Do you, do you see that that's what he says to Abraham in Genesis 12? The reason I am a covenant-keeping God with you is so that the nations of the world would be blessed. That's God's end. That's God's goal, the blessing of the nations. It's seen throughout Scripture, from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And this week, we're going to look at it as it is shown in exile. If you're not familiar with God's Scripture, don't worry about it. This passage is today after the fall of Jerusalem as the Israelites have been taken into captivity with the Babylonians, they're going to be there for 70 years, and then they're going to be released back to Jerusalem. And when those Israelites are released back to Jerusalem, it's going to be a 400 plus years Before, uh, Zechariah hears the voice of the Lord again, and God brings his redemption. So this this is centuries before Jesus that we're talking about. But the reason that we're sitting on this title, this concept of exile, is because it might be the most relevant to us as Christians. We are told over and over in the New Testament that we are exiles. The apostle Peter says that we are elect exiles. He tells us that we're scattered throughout the earth. Jesus says in Matthew 28 that we should go, we should be gone. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11 that we are like those who are without a country, waiting and wanting for a better country, a heavenly kingdom to come. We are exiles. That is why we are here. We're exiles as participants in the mission of God. Our mission is, if we are anything about God's mission, ought to be for the blessing of the nations. Did you know that's why you're here? You and I are not here to live our best lives now. That's not why we're here. That's not what we are about as God's church. We are supposed to be about for the blessing of the nations. But look, it's not just COVID that has become an obstacle for us. And, and let's be honest, it, it was a huge obstacle. It was a huge obstacle from which we all retreated, from which we all wondered what's safe to do, what's not safe to do, from which we all began to think, you know, how do we get back into each other's lives, from which we all began to ask the question, how in the world are we gonna to relate together again? It's not just that, but it's the fear of being forgotten, right? It's this idea that, that death is there. In some senses, it became closer to us than we might have recognized before. But this passage today suggests that there might be more reason for why we don't embrace God's mission, that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. To get at the heart of this, I wanna ask you a question. So listen to this question, if you will. How much do I, or do you, how much do we dislike it when others snub us or ignore us They patronize us. Others show off in front of us. They're always giving us their opinion. How much do you dislike that? Now, before you just raise your hand and go, yeah, I dislike that, I'm going to be a little bit more precise for you. Give me a number between 1 and 10. Put it in your head. Don't worry, I'm not going to play magic tricks and guess your number. But put it in there. Put it in there. How much do we dislike it when others snub, ignore, patronize, show off? Always give opinions. What is that number that's in your head? C.S. Lewis is the one that first asked the question. And he says that this question might be the best diagnosis of our level of pride in our lives. Pride. The vice at the center of human sickness. The root of what the Bible calls sin in the human heart. Lewis would go on in mere Christianity to call it the anti-God state of mind. But God's kindness deals with our pride and I just wanna show you two ways, one in the life of Nebuchadnezzar and the other in our lives from this story. Will you look at it with me again, this story of Nebuchadnezzar that is in Daniel four? We see God's kindness to Nebuchadnezzar and, and, and make sure you, you remember who Nebuchadnezzar is. Not only is it shocking that this entire chapter of the book of the Bible is written in the first person from a king of Babylon. Think about that for a minute. In God's Bible for every generation to read. But remember who Nebuchadnezzar is. If you have time this afternoon, go back and read the end of 2 Kings. 2 Kings 24-25. The story that I'm going to tell you is in 2 Kings 25. Nebuchadnezzar was a tough dude. After two years of laying siege against against Jerusalem, Jerusalem finally surrendered. And the last king that Nebuchadnezzar actually set up himself in Jerusalem, who, who was an Israelite, after he had betrayed Nebuchadnezzar, after Nebuchadnezzar captured him, he brought that king, Zedekiah, before him. And in front of him, he killed all of his children, all of his sons, killed them in front of his eyes. And then he proceeded to gouge out that king's eyes so that the last thing that king ever saw on this earth was the death of his children. That's who Nebuchadnezzar is. But I want you to see God's kindness toward Nebuchadnezzar as he deals with this issue of pride in his life. You you heard what Greg read That Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he went to Daniel and he said, explain the dream to me. And in verse 17 of that dream, again, it's chapter four of Daniel, but in verse 17, this is what the watcher said to him about that dream. The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, and this is to the end. This is why the dream happened. To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom's of men, and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. God's kindness to Nebuchadnezzar first comes in a dream, but it secondly comes from Daniel. And Greg didn't read these verses, so turn past verse 18 and turn to verse 19 and see that Daniel is the one who responds to King Nebuchadnezzar. Listen to how he does it. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar... Was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Beltshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. But Belteshazzar answered and said, Daniel answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you. Now wrap your head around that for a minute. Daniel, who is an Israelite, whose people have been crushed by this king hear this dream, understanding its interpretation, and he looks at this king who is holding him captive, and he says, may this dream and its interpretation be for your enemies, not for you. Wrap your head around what it must have been like for Daniel to be able to say that to Belteshazzar. It is a shocker. He is concerned for the well-being of the king. But that's not all that Daniel does for Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel tells the truth to Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 24 down here, if you will. Verse 24 says this. Daniel is speaking. And he says, this is the interpretation, O king. Daniel could have lied. He could have hidden. He could have done anything to avoid being crushed by this king. But in says, he says, it is a decree of the Most High, with Daniel who tells him the truth. And then if that weren't enough, one more, look at verse 27 right there. Daniel speaking again, therefore O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may be, there may, may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel pleads with King Nebuchadnezzar, who ought to be his archenemy, that he would repent and that his prosperity would continue. This interaction between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel just stops me. And I just think, how in the world is this the case? But then God in his kindness allows the event to happen. Verse 28 says this, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven that said, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it has been spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. The tree was stripped of its leaves and cut of its branches. The beasts were driven from the shade underneath. The birds fled and he was left as a stump in a field. And for seven seasons, Nebuchadnezzar lived in the grass and the dew of heaven wetted him and his nails grew and his hair like feathers. And it says he became like an ox. God in his kindness dealing with Nebuchadnezzar. The purpose we are told over and over is that God would be made known. Verse 32 tells it again as that voice speaks to him, and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you, listen, until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. A third time in this passage, the same thing says. This voice that speaks is effective. Nebuchadnezzar is now speaking again, and he says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And this is what he says, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Look how powerful God's work in Nebuchadnezzar's life was and how kind God was to deal with his pride. The last verse is 37 and he says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven.
0: Do you hear this?
1: Are you listening to what this Babylonian king has said? For all his works are right and his ways are just. And then finally, and those who walk in pride He is able to humble. What do we learn from this passage? We learn that it is pride that makes us inhuman. Look, it's fitting for an ox to live in a field and to be wedded by the dew of heaven. To eat whenever the ox wants to eat. To copulate whenever the ox wants to copulate. to, To fight whenever the ox wants to fight. That is a fitting thing for an ox to do but it is not a fitting thing for a human to do, a woman or a man made in the image of God. It is fitting for the ox, but it's what is fitting for the human being is to contemplate who God is. We, human beings, made in the image of God, women and men, it is fitting for us to contemplate God. And to speak of who he is. And to act in actions of love toward him and toward each other. Because that is who he is. That's what's fitting. And here, God in his kindness showed this to Nebuchadnezzar. Lewis says of God's work in our lives with pride, he says this. The point is, he being God wants you to know him, wants to give you himself. And he and you are two things of such a kind that if you really get into any kind of touch with him, you will in fact be humble, delightedly humble, feeling the infinite relief of having for once gotten rid of all the silly nonsense about our own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy for all your life. This story with Nebuchadnezzar, this king of Babylon, reminds us that God deals with our pride. You know, there's a lot of questions as to whether or not Nebuchadnezzar came to faith in God. The question's hard because he actually never uses God's name. You know, in your Bibles, when you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's Yahweh, right? You know that's God's personal name. That's how he reveals himself in covenant relationship with his people. And Nebuchadnezzar never uses that name. But you look at Nebuchadnezzar's responses in 34 and 35, and again in verses 2 and 3 at the very beginning of this, and you've got to ask your question, maybe... But you wanna know something? I want you to look at something different to consider that from Nebuchadnezzar's point of view. What about God's actions toward Nebuchadnezzar? That ought to stop you and go, wow, like is God really a God who saves somebody like Nebuchadnezzar? It seems to me that it's pretty favorable. I I don't know, we're gonna have to wait and see. But what I want you to see is how we end this story. And that's actually how kind God is toward us and our pride that we see in the story. God is committed to dealing with our pride, church. And again, if, if you're visiting today, if you're not a Christian, you might first identify yourself with Nebuchadnezzar, not because you've ever poked anybody's eyes out after you've killed their children. Don't get me wrong, I don't think any of that of any of you. Trust me, I think a lot better of you. But the reason why you might think about that of yourself is because you have said, I'm gonna control my life. It's my life. I'm in control. And God says, remember who I am. I made you. And your life is actually my life. But instead of requiring it from you, his gentleness, his kindness may just lead you toward repentance today. But church, now I'm talking to you. How does God deal with our pride? Because he's committed to dealing with that. Remember who read this for the first time? It's gonna be the Israelites, right? Israelites are reading this for the first time. Then the Jews of the time around Jesus is coming. We're gonna read this. And then, then Jesus references himself as the son of man, knowing that the people would be familiar with the book of Daniel. And so we know that this book was used for God's people. But then we go to us. These elect exiles spread throughout the earth, foreigners and aliens looking for a place to live. And look, if you don't think that you're a foreigner or an alien, if you don't think that you are the one who has been brought in, you misunderstand what scripture says about it. If we allow some demographic of this small country in some small sliver of time to define who foreigners or aliens are, we misunderstand the concept Completely. Because we are foreigners and aliens. We have been brought in, right? Why is this important to us? I wanna ask the last question of you. Is our hesitancy to engage in God's mission, that mission to live our lives as a blessing for the nation, is it due to our pride? Remember the question that I asked you just a few minutes ago, how much do you dislike it when others snub and ignore, patronize, show off, always give you their opinion? What was your number? Is God working on your pride? Lewis says that there are signs of pride in all of us, competitiveness. I want more than, to be better than. You guys... When I say that, Greg Russell knows more than the rest of you, but the rest of you who know me at all know that I am wicked competitive. And I can say wicked competitive even though I have a southern accent. I've lived here for 23 years. I've earned the right to say that word, all right? I'm wicked competitive. I have a buddy with whom we are so competitive that he and I will take a stopwatch and put it on 10 seconds and see who can stop it closest to zero. Like, that's how competitive we are. That's ridiculous, right? But the signs of our competition point to something else. How about the love of power as a point of pride? Your love of being able to move people's opinions. Lewis says that at the core, pride is always enmity. It's not just to be smart, but it's to be smarter than. It's not just to be rich, but to be richer than. It's not just to be successful, but to be more successful than. Does our pride, church, impede the mission of God? Lewis says that pride is the spiritual cancer, that it eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. Remind you of the ox in the field? Have you engaged in the, plural, the polarity of the world in which we live? in such a way that you have lost common sense. You have said there are other ways to solve the problems of this world other than God. Church, God is dealing with our pride. Because in Daniel's life, you don't see these things. In place of competitiveness is compassion. In place of the love of power is the engagement of truth-telling in the place of enmity, is actually his desiring the good for Nebuchadnezzar. And the question that we leave with is, how do we become more like Daniel? That's a great question. Do you know what Daniel's name means? Some of you are probably named Daniel. Some of you have probably named children Daniel. What does it mean? God is my judge. Hmm. Hmm. Daniel was obviously humbled in the exile. Daniel saw God's hand in it and he trusted in God. Everything he knew about God pointed to the fact that God was the one who raises people up. And takes kingdoms away from others. But is there more for that from you? Isn't there something else that you and I know that Daniel didn't know? Rack your head with me just for a minute. Isn't there another stump? Ah. The stump of Nebuchadnezzar isn't the only stump in scripture. In fact, the writer of Isaiah said that there is a stump of Jesse from whom a shoot would come up as he prophesied the coming of the Messiah. This idea of the stump of Jesse, Jesse was King David's father, right? Jesse was who King David was before King David was not known. Jesse was the lowliest of the lowly, and from that lowly stump, The prophet Isaiah says, a shoot will come up. And it says of that shoot that the spirit of the Lord will be on him, that the fear of the Lord would be his delight. We have defined fear of the Lord as an awe-filled orientation toward God in all of life. Listen, I just said all of life. Your relationships with the people that you're in most conflict with, does your understanding of God come into play there? but that this shoot would have the fear of the Lord as his delight. Isaiah 11 says that this shoot would judge the poor with righteousness and decide equity for the meek of the earth. And then this shoot is the one who is responsible for that famous verse that you all know, and the lion shall lie down with the lamb. This proclamation of peace from this shoot, from the stump of Jesse. You guys, this is the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. This is our Savior and our Lord who was cut off for us. As Isaiah 53 says, it pleased God to crush him. It pleased God to crush him. So that the knowledge of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It ends in Isaiah 11 there that there would be no more hurt. No more hurt. Jesus is our signal. He is our sign. He is the telos of our lives, that end to which we are going, because he is our Savior and our Lord. He is the one who humbled himself that you and I might look at him and be humble. He is the one through whom God deals with our pride because God is our judge. This passage will blow your mind if you'll sit and think on it a little bit. But this passage is the one where we understand God's kindness toward human pride. And trust me, church, it's not just the pride out there. In fact, It is focused on the pride here so that we would be women and men who go out humbled, participating in the mission of God, that all the nations would be blessed. Would you pray with me before we come to the table, please? Father, I thank you and praise you that you have given us your word. We can't believe that you have shared your holy scriptures with the king of Babylon and allowed him to put his chapter there. Father, we praise you that it is your word, that it is your spirit that has led Nebuchadnezzar to give us these words. And Father, we praise you that this is a story of how you have dealt with our our pride. Father, we come before you and we ask you, would you do a great work in our lives? Would you lead us to this table? Would we be humbled by coming here and by your provision and we would, would we understand the gift that you have given us in Christ? It is in his name that I pray all these things. Amen.